It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before beginning tonight's tale, I'd like to take a moment to thank my co-producers through Patreon. Anne Greta, Julie H., Julie S., Julie A., Kathleen, Lael, Ray, Stephen, Alex, Ian, and Jordan. And to all of my patrons past, thank you so much for your continued support. You took this from a one-woman project to a team. There are no words for my gratitude. Patreon is about to get a whole lot cooler with a ton more content, and I have a little something coming your way. Stay tuned, and I'll message you all very soon. I also want to thank Alex and Nicole for their invaluable help since Season 2. You're truly cherished. Another huge thanks to Paul Cooksey and Tyler from the Minds of Madness podcast for teaching me everything I know about sound engineering and production. You're two of the greatest guys I know and to Sean for all of his help with the show, the Patreon, the research, and keeping me laughing through the ups and downs. I'm lucky to know you. And now, on with the show. The convent was mysterious. As a building, it didn't really stand out much, with its simple white couple of visible through the thick forested hills of Attica. Maybe that was part of its chilling presence. It was too normal. If it could have just disappeared, I think the townsfolk would have been relieved. It wasn't that they despised religion, nor that the building or its occupants were imposing. They kept to themselves, really. And, of course, they would. They had dedicated their lives in service to God. What could they possibly want from the outside secular world? But they couldn't just ignore it, try as they might. Something there was very very wrong. And the shrill and desperate screams that pierced the air at all hours were a constant reminder. I'm Ariel Cooksey. Welcome to the 200th episode of Malice. The following episode contains discussions of kidnapping, child abuse, criminal neglect, battery, torture, and murder. 
If these issues may be triggering, please practice self-care and do not proceed. It's strange to say it, but this all started with a calendar. Okay, granted, it was kind of a big deal. For centuries, the Julian calendar had been losing time, a few minutes each year, which wouldn't seem like much, but minutes turned into days. By 1582, when Pope Gregory XIII introduced the new Gregorian calendar, a total of 12 days had been lost, and things were beginning to spiral. That year, under the new calendar, October 2nd was followed by October 14th to adjust for the loss and put the equinox back on track. By the 20th century, most countries in the world had adopted the Gregorian calendar or the revised Julian calendar, which followed the same time frame as its Gregorian counterpart. Greece, however, was slower on the uptake, not making the shift until 1923. Yet there were those in Eastern Orthodoxy who resisted the change. Due to the schism, a small surge of sectarian movements began, and Father Matthias was one leader among them. Calling his sect the Calendarists, Matthias took it upon himself to establish a convent, a rough thirty miles southeast of Athens, outside a town called Keratea, where they could continue to adhere to the Julian calendar established forty-five years before the birth of Christ. His right hand was a former factory worker turned nun, who began to take on the runnings of the convent as Father Matthias aged into his eighties, around the start of World War II. She rose to the rank of Mother Superior. Mother Miriam began to send out nuns to recruit wealthy converts, those looking for eternal salvation, including young girls, elderly women, and even entire families. Each in turn entered the convent, prepared to dedicate their lives to God. Calendarists practiced asceticism and strict adherence to punishment. The credulous converts were immediately forced to confess, to undertake a 40-day fast, and forgo sleep for a full week. At the conclusion of this, they were offered, quote, eternal salvation and lasting peace in exchange for signing over their estates to the convent. Most converts were too exhausted physically and broken mentally to resist. Those who did, however, were coerced into imbibing narcotic drinks and subsequently tortured. Throughout this all, merely a single month in, an exacting code of silence was enforced that would characterize the entire time in the convent. If a single word was uttered, Mother Miriam would beat the convert in the face with a shoe. But it wasn't until 1949 that the outward facade of propriety was shattered. A Greek-born American girl, Ileana Spiridis, had gone missing and was thought to have been taken to the convent. When police broke in, followed by hordes of howling peasants from nearby Karatea, there was no sign of Ileana. What they found instead was nightmare upon nightmare. During the police search for 18-year-old Ileana, they discovered an underground windowless cell, four feet by seven feet. The diminutive size almost didn't matter, though. The 70-year-old woman within was chained to the wall. She explained that this was part of her penance, and she had been subsisting for weeks on dry bread and water. But this wasn't the only disturbing find. According to Michael Newton, author of Bad Girls Do It, quote, Aside from swindling her disciples, Miriam dominated every aspect of their lives, 
cutting off their contact with relatives, caging some like animals, resorting to starvation, flogging, and torture to purge new recruits of their demons. No doctors were permitted on the grounds, and many recruits who entered the commune were never seen again. A mother from Thebes joined the cult with her four daughters. All five were dead within six months of their arrival on the Mount of Pines. Nocturnal passers-by reported screams and moaning from the compound. One night, two drunken villagers scaled the fence and found an elderly woman chained to a wall, but she declined their help, and the intruders kept their observation to themselves. As police and prosecutors began to unravel the evidence, they faced a tale almost too unreal to be true and positively medieval in its diabolic qualities. Converts were told they were now brides of Christ, and if they left, they were damned and guilty of moral adultery. When a nun would die, their relatives were told, Sister X is sleeping with Christ. While that sounds innocent enough, there had been 358, quote, recent deaths, 55 of which had been due to tuberculosis. Fasting to starvation and draconian penance accounted directly for the deaths of 177 men and women all under direct participation by Mother Mariam. Over the years, Mariam, Father Matthios, and a sister, Medrinos, had amassed 390 land titles along with around $150,000 in money, jewelry, and other land ownings. In today's currency, that totals over $1.7 million. All those converts who had handed over their land perished shortly after. Following her 1949 arrest, Mariam Solakiotis was imprisoned for nearly two years while authorities tried to sift through the deluge of unsettling evidence of her crimes. In 1951, she was sentenced to an additional 26 months for abducting a child and convincing her she was an orphan. Her family was under the impression their child had died. The child had been unlawfully confined to the convent for 12 years. A year later, in 1952, Miriam and eight other nuns, along with a phony bishop, were brought up on charges of withholding food and medical treatment from a monk and three nuns, causing their deaths and obtaining their estates by fraud, earning Miriam a ten-year sentence. In November 1953, following an additional 23 charges of embezzlement, fraud, and illegal detention and abuse of a convent member, she was sentenced to another four years. During closing statements, the prosecutor emotionally expressed, quote, If anyone goes through the file of these crimes, he would be so shaken that he would never recover. The woman, perpetually shrouded in all black, face almost entirely covered, with black soulless eyes piercing through, kept an expression of, quote, stern contempt and went to her sentence without emotion. She had earned the nickname of Mother Rasputin for her ability to draw people in and manipulate them, and was called the, quote, wickedest woman of the century. Miriam Solakiotis is not likely to become a household name, despite the severity of her crimes, but her case leads to a troubling question. How does someone seemingly so devout transition into a deadly sadist?
Well, it's not as unlikely as you may want to believe. I'd like to take the dark tetrad behaviors into consideration. The dark tetrad are four personality traits tied to antisocial behavior. Psychopathy, sadism, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. Just as a brief refresher, psychopathy is a neuropsychiatric disorder marked by deficient emotional response, lack of empathy, and poor behavioral controls. These individuals are more likely to be aggressive or to shun social norms and mores in order to fulfill their own desires. Sadism, as we discussed at length in the prior case, is the tendency to derive pleasure, often sexually, from inflicting pain, suffering, or humiliation on others. Machiavellianism is a personality trait that denotes cunning, manipulativeness, and willingness to use whatever means necessary to gain power. We will be discussing that in a future episode of Malice. And of course, narcissism is characterized by an inflated sense of self-importance and excessive self-interest. In a 2021 study published in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology, 199 participants completed online assessments on the dark tetrad personality types alongside indicators of belief in supernatural phenomenon and belief in science. The results of this study indicate that those with higher levels of religious belief have lower levels of psychopathy. The same population, however, shows higher levels of sadism than the rest of the study population, accounting for a full 7% of the variance. I'm not in any way trying to knock religion. According to Malcolm Schofield, quote, there's a difference in people's personality depending on whether they hold religious or paranormal beliefs. While particular beliefs might be associated with dark personality traits, the reasons for this can be complex. For example, religious believers being linked to sadism could be a result of a belief in a just world, where people believe others get what they deserve. And certainly, the vast majority of religious or spiritual people are not sadistic. There are varying levels here. In a 2016 study, Cook Children's explored geographic profiling for incidents of child abuse. The study indicated that hotbeds for such practices tended to cluster around fundamentalist Christian churches. That may seem counterintuitive, but within such practices, there is a stricter adherence to certain Old Testament practices— Notably, spare the rod, spoil the child. If we take this expression in its most literal sense, we can see how corporal punishment would be more permitted and acceptable. Those who are already prone to abuse may be drawn to ideologies that endorse it, even if they then take it to the extreme. Even so, it's hardly predictive that being religious would lead someone to be cruel, much less a sadist. But I think it's important to remember as well that being a nun, especially in the early 20th century, was a grueling vocation. Social pressures could cause women and girls to pursue this course out of an obligation rather than a true passion for God or God's work. Once in such a position, if the love of God wasn't real or abundant, a woman might find herself in a stifling relationship calculated to break her down. Further, Nuns may be assigned to any number of life's work vocations, whether nursing the sick or running an orphanage. Sometimes, a thing that despite their calling, they may be grossly underqualified for. 
At this stage in history as well, there was a strong push towards breaking the will to make one worthy of God's love. What this means is in taking account of the nun's desires and aptitudes, she was explicitly denied them and set to a task that was completely unbefitting. On purpose. And because of societal pressures and paradigms, the fault was put upon the nun if she could not perform or even felt frustration or resentment. This led to fastidious prayer and penance, self-flagellation, and fasting. They were punishing themselves. Is it any wonder that a number of these women lost their bearings along the way? I can't with 100% certainty speak to Sulakiotis' motives for meeting out the viciousness she did, but frankly, I'm inclined to think she was not merely sadistic, but a full-blown psychopath. We see a juxtaposition of each of the dark tetrad traits in addition to sadism, showing a keenly manipulative con woman who felt utterly remorseless for her crimes. Her determination to become a bride of Christ aside, it's clear to me that power corrupted. God save anyone in her wake. As always, thank you so much for your support and encouragement. It means the world to me. If you would like to support the show, visit patreon.com slash malicepod, where you can access ad-free bonus content for as little as a dollar a month, including my current collaboration with world-renowned criminologist, profiler, and expert on abnormal homicides, Dr. Lee Miller, where we explore the sinister case of the Werewolf of Los Angeles series, beginning with the murder of the Black Dahlia. Find me on social media at malicepod on Instagram and TikTok. To reach me directly, email me at malicepod at gmail.com. I love to hear from listeners, so my door is always open. Thank you once more for 200 cases. I hope you'll join me next week as I kick off the spooky season with a case that will shake you to the core. Until then, I'm Ariel Cooksey, and this is Malice. Thank you.